You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti coming to you from our home studios. What you're about to hear is our continuing coverage of the American Bar Association's mid-year meeting in San Diego, California. In this episode, we catch up with Dr. Wayne Riley, Mr. David Clark, and Mr. Paul Krikorian, who were panelists for a discussion called Gun Violence, a Public Health Epidemic. In preparation for this interview, I researched hot-button issues in the gun control debate and formulated questions designed to enhance understanding of the issues presented. These questions were admittedly challenging and occasionally incorporated the counterpoint, but as you will soon hear, the panelists were ready with well-thought-out answers. We hope you find this discussion as educational as we intended it to be. We now cut to our interview, starting with David Clark. Yes, I'm a lawyer in Jackson, Mississippi. I chair the ABA's Standing Committee on Gun Violence, uh, which was has been around since the early 90s. The criminal justice section of the ABA helped form the the Standing Committee on Gun Violence. And for many, the ABA has a long policy on measures to prevent gun violence going back to 1965. And uh, a lot of the early measures were uh, pushed by the criminal justice section. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Riley? Yes, I am uh, president of the American College of Physicians, which is the nation's largest medical specialty society, representing those of us who practice internal medicine and subspecialties such as cardiology, endocrinology, gastroenterology, et cetera. We're the second largest uh, group in the the country in in terms of physicians, but the largest uh, specialty society. And we've taken a very strong interest in approaching firearm violence as a public health issue. Great. And uh, Paul? Hi, Lawrence. My name is Paul Krikorian. I'm a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Uh, Previously, I served as a member of the California State Assembly. And before that, I spent 20 years or so practicing law in Los Angeles. And I got involved with the gun violence issue um, originally as a lawyer in the early 1990s uh, when I chaired the Guns and Violence Committee of the Los Angeles County Bar Association and um, helped to move the ball forward on some of the uh, first ordinances that were drafted here in Los Angeles um, through city, then City Attorney Mike Feuer and City Attorney Jackie Goldberg and others. And some of those ordinances then went on to become models for state law and um, led to a real national movement around this issue. Great, great. So let's uh, let's turn it back to the uh, the speaking engagement here. Gun violence, a public health epidemic. So I was just hoping uh, that somebody, a volunteer, could just tell me in general what this event was about. Yes, we were looking at, as it indicates, looking at gun violence in this country uh, as a public health issue. We had on the program, in addition to those of us who are here, uh, several speakers who weren't able to stay. Uh, Julie Leftwich of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, uh, Mike Feuer, who is the city attorney of Los Angeles and a co-founder of Prosecutors Against Gun Violence, and Professor Erwin Chemerinsky of the University of uh, California at Irvine uh, School of Law. Uh, We looked at gun violence uh, from a public health perspective, and uh, uh, Dr. Riley uh, addressed sort of the overall problem and, and, and looking at this and what they have done on the medical side. And that, that started out giving an overview. And then it's, it's something, as we indicated uh, in, in the talk, it's something that uh, we can do something about in this country. There are measures that will, and we know they will, reduce gun violence 
uh, if we just have the, uh, the public will to do it. And Dr. Riley, your part of the presentation was uh, giving some background information as to the leap between uh, what's going on in gun violence and the health epidemic part of it. And so I think a great place to start would to sh be to share some of the statistics and deaths amongst different conditions, medical conditions, and then compare those to the gun violence. Sure. Uh, as David indicates, uh, we, uh, the nation's uh, internists, uh, view this as a public health issue, Lawrence. Uh, there was a time when we didn't think we could control polio. Uh, there was a time when there were uh, many more motor vehicle accidents than there are today. Uh, there was a time when we didn't think we'd uh, be able to stem the tide of HIV and AIDS in this country. Those are public health uh, situations that have greatly benefited by public health approaches. And so with firearm violence, we feel very strongly the same way. Uh, approximately 32,000 deaths a year due to firearms. That's about 88 a day, every single day in this nation, about 88, almost 90 people die from firearm violence. More importantly, uh, to many families, there's 19,000 suicides. There's 11,000 homicides. And even if you don't fall victim in terms of death uh, to firearm violence, there's another 75,000 Americans who suffer non-fatal injuries uh, due to firearms. And even more sadly, 15,000 children under the age of 21 uh, are affected by firearm violence. So again, when you frame the discussion as a, as a public health issue, it really demands action by uh, those in government, those of us in the medical profession, the legal profession, and communities all across this nation. Okay, let's bridge the gap on that because uh, typically when I, when I think of, uh, of a health epidemic, I'm thinking disease and I'm thinking of some type of, uh, you know, something that affects your biology and not necessarily something that's caused by a person uh, with an object. But I think the numbers, uh, I, I, like the, I like how you approach that in, in the comparison. The numbers compare with other diseases and afflictions. And so uh, let's start with that, so just some comparative numbers. Sure. Uh, you know, common disease entities that we know, all know about, heart disease, uh, you know, firearms killed just about as many people as heart disease. Uh, it, ha it affects more people than Parkinson's disease. Uh, it affects more uh, Americans than uh, diabetes in some areas of the country. So again, when you think about it and compare it and contrast, as you just highlighted, with things that were more commonly uh, that, that we see more commonly in our friends and our neighbors and our communities, it is pretty staggering that firearm violence stacks up uh, to be a more significant public health problem than even the problems we worry about. Well, and like other, uh, other health epidemics, there's study that goes into them and uh, eventually yields action and uh, hopefully a cure for, for this. And so I guess I kind of want to get into that, uh, some of the ideas that you had that uh, could help stem the tide of gun violence in our country. Well, it's funny that you, you raised that example because actually gun violence injuries stand sort of alone compared to some of the other sources of injury in our country. Um, as Dr. Riley was just mentioning, car accidents. We've taken enormous strides in this country to make driving a car safer through traffic engineering, through uh, product liability, uh, uh, accountability, um, by requiring certain engineering standards in our cars. Um, the situation with gun violence is entirely the opposite of that. Uh, we prohibit the CDC from studying gun violence. 
we give immunity to the manufacturers of guns from uh, liability, uh, and we've done essentially nothing to require engineering upgrades to make these implements safer. If you could imagine any other item in commerce taking 30,000 lives a year, um, every legislator, every member of Congress uh, would be clamoring for a recall of this product uh, or to ban it altogether. But in fact, we have none of that uh, clamor, when it, at least not in Washington, when it comes to, to gun violence. So it's time really that we start thinking of these products in the same way we think of any other kind of product that causes this, this much harm and deal with it accordingly. The, the legislative route is one aspect of this solution and, and finding legislative solutions, whether in Congress, whether in our state legislators or legislatures or in uh, municipal governments. But I think as a society, we really need to come to grips with the fact that uh, it's intolerable to allow so much injury, so much death, so much uh, economic loss, so much pain uh, to come from this particular product and turn our heads and look the other way. Let's unpack that a little bit. So I want to go to the immunity from, uh, from liability as it pertains to the gun manufacturers because uh, my understanding from what I know about how guns are manufactured is that they are manufactured pretty well to do what they do. They're designed for a specific purpose and they accomplish that purpose pretty effectively. And so the, I guess what, what I'm trying to, where I'm trying to go here is that used properly and they kill someone, they are functioning properly. And it becomes the matter of the intent of the, the, the holder of the firearm. Well, that's, that, that's, that's not exactly right. There is a lot that can be done uh, from the product side. Uh, for instance, we do have the ability now to have what are called smart guns that can be operated like your your uh, iPhone with fingerprints, uh, and no one but a certain person could use that, or by wearing a watch with a signal to the to the gun and so forth. Uh, but what can be done? A huge amount of the work is keeping guns out of the wrong hands, and and the fact that we have not done that in this country has led to this incredible spate of, of violence, of death and injuries, as, as uh, Dr. Riley mentioned. We are not, statistics show, we are not any more violent than other advanced countries. We're just much more lethal. We don't have more suicide attempts per capita in this country than other countries. We just have more suicide deaths because guns can get into the hands of people who shouldn't have them. And we know, just, just a word about do guns make a difference? We know that just generally looking at, if you look at the states that have laws that make it harder for guns to get into the wrong hands, hands of the people who are going to harm themselves or harm others, people who are barred by federal law from getting guns because they're a felon or for certain other things, states that have laws that are stricter in keeping guns away from those people have lower gun death and gun injury rates per capita. We know that. We know that there have been public health studies that show what happens when a state changes a law. And here, just this last year, we have had two uh, incredibly precise very good public health studies relating to two states, uh, Connecticut, which adopted in 1995 um, a universal background checks, and another state, Missouri, which had universal background checks and went away from them. And exactly what happened is 
Connecticut, the long-term study, you look at it, a huge decrease after they put those background checks to keep guns out of the wrong hands, a 40% decrease in gun homicides, reduction in suicides from that. What happened in Missouri where they got, they had that law, they had that safety law, but they got away from it, gun deaths go up. Guns uh, recovered after crimes that were used in crimes originating Missouri go up. So we know that gun measures like this to keep guns out of the wrong hands work. We just have to introduce them. Well, let's uh, let's expand upon that because I, I think that's one thing. As as I was doing my preparation for this interview, I read a little bit about both sides of this argument. I know there's a lot of people that are you know that feel different ways, but I think one thing that both sides of uh, any type of gun control argument will say is that we definitely need to keep guns out of the wrong hands. They may not agree who those wrong hands are, so I kind of wanted to get an idea of well, just maybe I could go around and maybe you guys agree or disagree, but who are the, the people that we consider to be the wrong hands for, for guns. So you said violent uh, violent felons or people with the violent nature, but but who else? Well we, well, we have a law. We have a law, federal law, that says when buying from a, we have prohibited purchasers. The problem is those are prohibited purchasers only from federally licensed firearm dealers and only if you get the results of a background check back in a certain time to go to a federally licensed firearm dealer and and you have to have a background check. But if that background check is not completed in three days that they can sell to you, even if you're a convicted murderer, uh, you you have been a domestic abuser, you've been convicted of that, that's two, you you have been, well, and those are are two big ones. If you are someone uh, who has been committed for mental health, Uh, issues. And so we have this, but a huge number of gun sales are not by federally licensed dealers. They're by people uh, who may be selling at gun shows. They may be selling over the internet. They may be selling, uh, uh, buying from a federally licensed dealer as a, what they might call a straw man purchase and turning around. And this happens so often in the big cities. They'll take it from a state with a with the loose laws, they'll buy them, they'll take them into the city, open up the trunk, sell guns out of, uh, uh, to people, and they will sell them to people who could not go into a federally licensed dealer and buy the guns. So just, and just keeping them out of those hands, people that are already prohibited by some laws, federal laws, when purchasing from certain places, that would make a huge difference. And that's, that deals with the sale of firearms. We should also talk about when a law-abiding gun owner has a gun, keeping that gun out of the wrong hands as well. And I think most people, since you talked about the polarization of this issue um, and where we should be able to find common ground, I think most people would agree that children should not have access to firearms in a home. And yet, Uh, We also know that there are two million children in the United States living in homes that... Now, when you say children, are we talking minors or are we talking kids beneath a certain age? Because, you know, I know I have quite a few friends I grew up with in high school that were handling firearms at a young age. Now, it was under supervision, but, you know, they're handling firearms from the ages of six and up. And it's just part of the thing that they did with their father went hunting. And so I know that. So when you say children... Let's let's define that a little bit. Sure. I, I would say that 
you know, anybody who's giving a gun to their child at the age of six uh, should be prosecuted for, prosecuted for child endangerment. That's my view. Um, but we do know, as I was starting to say, that two million ch uh, minors live in homes with unlocked, loaded firearms. Now, you know, usually that parent will say, oh, but I've taught my child how about safe gun handling, and or I've hidden the gun away and they won't find it. We also know that the majority of the children living in those households know where the gun is, they know how to get access to it, and if left alone with it, they're really not going to leave it alone. Um, so the result of that is that we have uh, children every day dying in gun accidents. We have a vast number of young people who go through depression or uh, some other crisis in their life and because that gun is there and not safely stored what might otherwise have just passed as part of growing up and getting older and going through adolescence and all that because that gun was available that momentary weakness that momentary moment of doubt and 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 pain results in an irrevocable act of tragedy when that child commits suicide so I think we should all be able to at least agree that when a firearm is not being used, it should be locked and properly stored. But even that, in this era of polarization, even that is, has somehow become controversial. And it, um, it's not something that I can understand. That's why the Los Angeles has uh, passed an ordinance mandating safe storage of firearms in homes, just to, to prevent those suicides, to prevent those accidental shootings, to prevent guns from being burglarized, stolen during home burglaries and, and getting out to the black market, uh, to prevent the, uh, a domestic violence incident from becoming deadly in an instant. Um, those are the sorts of things that can be stopped if you just take the simple act of locking a gun. I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and so there are people that buy firearms for home protection, and if you require them to put all of their firearms behind a safe, it may not be available in time for someone to engage in self-defense. And so uh, is there, in that logic, an exception that allows that to happen? There's nothing showing that. that that's the theory that's thrown out by uh, certain, certain groups uh, sponsored by the gun manufacturers. That is, guns in the home, it's shown time and time again, are much more likely to be used against someone in the home or by someone against somebody they thought was a, you know, it turns out it's the daughter's boyfriend, not an intruder. And so guns in the home, uh, and Dr. Riley talked about in this in the program, and, and the numbers so far is so much more dangerous. Uh, and uh, the incidences of uh, self-defense by guns are yeah, very, very small. You know, and Lawrence, just to follow on David and, and, and Paul's points here, you know, I, we really feel as the nation's physicians that we need to reframe it, this whole discussion. This is about saving lives and improving communities. And so what we've articulated is very common sense uh, measures that would not eliminate uh, firearm violence, but markedly decrease it. I, as a physician, uh, can do a lot of things to help people. I can maybe treat a disease, but I know in some cases the disease is going to take that victim at some point. So we didn't stop all motor vehicle accidents when we adopted mandatory seatbelt legislation, but we've markedly decreased motor vehicle uh, fatalities um, and so forth. So if you take the same sort of public health approach to firearm violence, we think we can make a difference. Will it stop every mass shooting? No. But will it 
result in less death and disability? We think so. Uh, we call for such common sense things as ban on high capacity magazines in civilian hands. Uh, uh, no assault, no no assault weapons. Uh, you know, other than for law enforcement, uh, there's no sporting purpose for an assault weapon. Uh, you know, high capacity magazines have been sort of the substrate around some of the mass shootings when the perpetrators have been able to uh, fire multiple shots in a very short period of time, and that it doesn't allow the victims to overtake uh, the uh, the uh, assailant. Uh, so again, we know that. Human nature being human nature, we're not going to stop this totally. But can we make a difference in terms of a, a, a situation that is purely preventable? We think so. And Lawrence, to your specific point about self-defense, yes. because I did write this ordinance requiring safe storage, and sure. so that argument came up often. Let me just point out that the National Rifle Association itself, when it issues uh, safe uh, storage guidelines to its members says that you should not keep a loaded, unlocked firearm uh, in a way that anyone else can gain access to it. The NRA itself says firearms should be unloaded and safely locked or safely stored. If you are following those guidelines and you need to defend your home, that means you need to go to your hiding place to find your gun. Um, you need to go and find your bullets, your magazine, in order to load your gun, in order to defend it. Instead of that, what you could do is simply keep a locking case next to your bedstand with your loaded firearm in the locking case. That would be consistent with compliance with my ordinance, and you'd be able to have access to it within seconds. What people do instead is they try to do this hiding thing, which never works, and it actually makes them, them and their families less safe. Just had a case just a, a week or so ago of a security guard um, who was sleeping with her 10-year-old grandchild in the bed with her, had her loaded handgun underneath the pillow. They, they move around, the grandchild is killed by that fire. It happens all the time. If she had been a responsible gun owner, she would have had that gun in a locked case next to the bedstand. She still would have been able to defend herself if need be, and that child would be alive today. Uh, that's good. I think it's a great. Uh, I think it's a great response, and uh, no, I think that, that's good food for thought for everybody that uh, you know does implement a firearm into their personal safety. So I definitely want to get into the. Uh, this is a uh, an, an issue I've been reading a lot about. States have this issue's come up again and again, and it seems to kind of there seems to be an ebb and flow like the tide with it, and that's uh, extended capacity magazines for for firearms. And so. Um, I'm going to ask this question, uh, and I'm looking for a volunteer. What do you consider? How many rounds is an extended capacity magazine for a handgun? And then how many rounds is an extended capacity for a rifle? Do you consider? Let me start start this way. Uh, uh, Dr. Riley mentioned no sporting purpose for that. One thing I remember from, I, I grew up with guns and uh, hunting. And to go bird hunting, and it was a federal regulation, I believe, in, in a shotgun, you typically had shotguns that would hold five shells. But federal law prohibited you in, in bird hunting from having more than a gun that would hold more than three shells, so you could, you had to plug it. So federal law, federal regulations, when you're going hunting, were keeping you from having more than three shells. Why in the world does somebody think, nobody hunts for deer with a 
with a, a gun with a, uh, you know, a magazine that holds 10, 12, 8. Uh, it, is, it is not, there's no sporting purpose, uh, and it, it makes no sense. And it, no one has... So under the, feder- the former federal assault weapons ban and under current California state law prohibiting the importation or manufacture of large capacity magazines, um, and under my ordinance that we just passed in Los Angeles prohibiting possession of large capacity magazines, uh, the definition is 10 rounds uh, or fewer. 10 rounds, I'm sorry, more than 10 rounds is a large capacity magazine. So that's, so, that's for both handguns and rifles. Yes. And um, obviously there are some handguns uh, that come with a stock magazine that would normally reco- allow more than 10 rounds. There are a few examples of those. Um, they simply sell a California version of the magazine, uh, which is restricted to only allow 10 rounds. It's not that complicated. It's worked well in California for almost 20 years. So uh, when we try to address this problem, what we're really getting at is those situations where, and, and I wrote this ordinance in Los Angeles. To be honest with you, whether it's 10 rounds or 12 rounds, that's probably not the biggest difference in the world. But should people be using 30-round magazines or 100-round drum magazines or, you know, these other sort of uh, tools of mass destruction? Um, I just don't see any justification for being able to, um, to utilize those sorts of things, especially with an assault weapon, but, but in any kind of a weapon. Uh, it's it, it, the inconvenience of having to reload really doesn't outweigh the extraordinary risk that these large capacity magazines create, especially in a mass shooting situation. And, and as um, someone on the program uh, dis- discussed today, uh, there are examples in the Gabby Gifford shooting, for instance. The, uh, the gunman had a high capacity magazine uh, and maybe it was only 10, I don't... It's 33 rounds. 33 rounds. And he was stopped only after spraying bullets and shooting, and he was stopped only when he had to to change, when he ran out of bullets to change magazines and someone was able to overtake him. Now, what if that had been 10? It wouldn't have stopped every death. It would have lessened the damage, lessened the injuries, maybe lessened the, the lives taken. Uh, right. Yeah, and again, uh, if you look at the mass shootings that have all um, sort of uh, pulled at our heartstrings, whether it's Sandy Hook, um, uh, Colorado, Wisconsin, Charleston, San Bernardino, uh, the perpetrators all had either an assault-style weapon or uh, high-capacity magazines. And so, you know, it, in our view, the scientific view says, and, and having seen patients in the emergency room with gunshot wounds, uh, your likelihood of surviving a single gunshot wound is much higher than if you'd had three or four. Um, and so, again, from a medical uh, viewpoint of having taken care of, unfortunately, victims in the emergency room of gunshot wounds, uh, I'd rather take care of someone who has one solitary gunshot wound than multiple. Uh, and that, that, you know, the, the potential for that victim to survive is increased. So from a medical and a uh, legalistic point of view, I think there's a very strong argument to say that we should limit uh, civilian access to assault-style weapons and to large-capacity magazines. 
And I guess I have one more question, and this goes along because I read a lot about this uh, defining an assault-style weapon. And so, what is uh, what is your understanding of an assault-style weapon? Is it is something that looks like a, an AR-15 or an AK-47, or is it based on the type of action that it is? How, how do you define that? We were able to f- define it well enough to, prohi- to prohibit them by federal law from 1994 to 2004. Uh, when the legislation was passed as a compromise, they put a sunset provision in there at 10 years. And of course, uh, when, it, when it ran out, the Congress and the President were such that uh, they did not, did not renew it. You know, all of this too, this we could prohibit that by law. There are so many other things. You hear people saying, and I think this is a particular place where the ABA can be helpful, is you have so many people saying, oh, you can't do that, you can't have that law, you can't have that regulation, it violates my Second Amendment rights. Well, the Supreme Court has spoken, the lower courts have spoken following the Supreme Court's lead, and the Supreme Court has said, and as our constitutional scholar on the program today uh, had, had said, you know, they, they, the federal law in Heller from the Supreme Court and Justice Scalia writing the opinion said you can regulate what kind of gun people have, you can regulate who can have the guns, and you can regulate where they have the guns. And there have been, as also came out in the discussion today, and you can find on our uh, website, we have a, a, a white paper from a year ago that looked at the post-Heller decisions. At that point, you can find other authorities that have them to date. Uh, essentially, at that time, there had been about 900 court decisions since the Heller decision in, in 2008. And 93, 94% of the challenges to regulations were failing. The laws were being upheld. So, so and, and based on our, what our Supreme Court has said. So there's so much that can be done, and we know that it will have an effect in reducing gun violence, and it's perfectly within the Second Amendment. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for stopping by. I, I picked uh, those issues uh, that we talked about because they tend to be hinging points between two sides of an argument on, on the Second Amendment, on the possibility of more or less gun control. So I thank you for uh, uh, walking us through some of that. So what I'd like to do now is invite you to share final thoughts before we close it out. And uh, let's start with David. Yes, I, I think the, the big point is what we are talking about is reducing gun violence. What all, and, and that is what can do that, let's look at what can do it, let's study it from a public health point of view, but look at the measures that have, uh, can reduce the gun violence. Those opposing those measures don't talk about reducing gun violence. All they have to say is, you're violating my Second Amendment rights, and what we're here to say from the ABA and what the constitutional scholars say is, absolutely not read the court decisions, read the Supreme Court decision. Uh, They have made it clear that we can regulate who has certain guns, what type of guns, and where. It's within the Second Amendment. So we're talking about reducing gun violence. Any ideas, any suggestions to reduce gun violence are welcomed. Dr. Riley. Lawrence. This is the nation's physicians and lawyers working together to address a national problem. Let's approach firearm violence like we've done with HIV, polio, tuberculosis, other uh, conditions that we talked about earlier, and let's try to mitigate or lessen 
the heavy burden of death, disability, and disruptive families and communities because of firearm violence. And Paul? Well, you know, uh, we're facing a national crisis of gun violence. Um, since 1970, more Americans have died to gun violence in this country than have died in all of America's wars combined since the Revolutionary War. Um, that is an intolerable situation, and we know the sorts of basic common sense things that would help reduce that. Uh, we know that we would be better off if we had comprehensive registration and licensing of firearms, if people had to demonstrate that they know how to use a gun before they acquire it, if we could keep guns out of the hands of people who have a history of violence, if we could protect children in our homes by safe storage practices. We know the steps that will be um, important in reducing that level of of carnage, I think it's time that the country come together and find consensus around some of these common sense uh, issues instead of polarizing the issue so much. And the ABA has played such an important role over the last 20 plus years in helping to, to advance this dialogue. Uh, but I think each of your listeners uh, plays an individual role in that as well. And the lawyers uh, of America in their own communities can make a real difference by uh, being voices of reason as well with their policymakers. Most NRA members support comprehensive registration and licensing, and yet we still don't have these, uh, these common sense measures moving forward. It's really a matter of political will of this country, whether or not we are going to be able to advance like the other civilized nations of the world and um, finally, once and for all, get a grip on uh, gun violence. And that's up to your listeners just as, as, just as much it is, as it is up to those of us who are actually making laws, those who are listening, who can influence their policymakers. They, I think they have an obligation to do so. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for an enlightening discussion, and thank you for stopping by. All right. Thank you, Lawrence. This has been another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. Hey, thank you so much, you guys. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.